Welcome to Radio Free Sunroot. You're listening to the interview podcast, Voices for Nature and Peace, where we discuss issues of ecology, empire, justice, and consciousness. We feature a variety of guests who are aware of the challenges of our time and who are working to address them. Here's your host, Calibri Ter Sonnenblum. Episode 18, The Unsustainability of Civilization, featuring Will Falk. Will Falk is a biophilic essayist, poet, and lawyer. He believes the intensifying destruction of the natural world is the most pressing issue confronting us today, and he aims his writing at stopping this destruction. His work has been published by Earth Island Journal, The Dark Mountain Project, Counterpunch, Whole Terrain, and the San Diego Free Press, among others. He is also the author of the book, When Dams Fall. His newest project is called The Ohio River Speaks. Will and I spoke on June 14, 2020. We talked about the problem of civilization, about depression as a gateway to understanding that, and about the profound cultural changes required for collective, individual, and ecological health. Well, I really appreciate you making some time to talk to me. It's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to be here. Maybe we could just start off with you telling us what it means to be a rights of nature lawyer. That That's a great question and one that I have been um, revisiting and questioning a lot lately. Uh, I guess for me, um, what it means to be a rights of nature lawyer right now or or up to this point has been to uh, seek uh, rights um, that are specifically defined as the rights to exist, flourish, regenerate, and naturally evolve uh, for major ecosystems like the Colorado River or like um, Lake Erie, which is an, an ecosystem that I've um, recently um, finished up work with. Uh, but the idea is that corporations have rights and um, they use those rights all the time to protect their ability to destroy nature. Uh, and whenever you have entities or, or classes of citizens that have rights and, and then there are uh, people who do not have rights, the people with rights always oppress those without rights. And, and at the heart of environmental destruction, um, especially in the United States, is the notion that, uh, or is the legal definition of nature only as property. So American courts only define nature as property. Uh, property is an object which people can use, um, consume, and ultimately destroy. So the rights of nature movement uh, takes aim at at those, primarily those two ideas, um, corporate rights and, and um, and the legal definition of nature as property. Uh, now, I think um, I mentioned that I've been rethinking my involvement and, and trying to uh, redefine what it means to be a rights of nature uh, lawyer lately, um, primarily because uh, as a lawyer, I think the kinds of 
changes that the courts are going to have to make and that the government is ultimately going to have to support are changes that we're still many decades away from. Uh, so I, I don't think that we will see courts uh, recognize rights for, for major ecosystems for 30 or 40 years at least. And, and at a time when uh, literally every hour that passes, there's more destruction of the natural world, uh, where uh, more species are going extinct, um, where more pollutants are pumped into water and air. I don't think that we have 30 or 40 years. I don't think that it's morally justifiable to insist on strategies uh, that would take 30 or 40 years when uh, we could employ more direct tactics um, to, to create change and to protect the natural world. So, so I'm, I'm now starting to see my, um, see my involvement in rights of nature and also see the rights of nature strategy as, as merely a stepping stone within a broader strategy that um, requires people to understand that uh, the legal system is, is an impotent uh, mechanism for for creating the kind of uh, um, deep and radical changes that we need um, but with the idea that once people fully understand this once people understand that we're not going to go into court and protect nature we're not going to convince legislators to protect nature they can start to have some honest and frank conversations about what we could do to protect um, nature and, and our communities and, and all of the all of us who depend on nature, which of course is all of us. Has there been some uh, success or headway in these areas in other countries? Yes, there has. Um, the um, the country of Ecuador uh, has enacted um, rights of nature, has drafted rights of nature right into their constitution. Um, I'm not sure, though, um, how many cases have actually been brought and, and successfully try, tried under a rights of nature theory in Ecuador. I, I think the last I saw there had been one successful case um, in, the, in the last 10 years. Um, there, the, the, in New Zealand, um, a whole area, a whole uh, natural community called Te Oravera by the, by the Maori people, uh, which includes a forest and the Wanganui River within that forest, uh, was um, was recognized as a legal person with with all the rights of of personhood in the country of New Zealand. Uh, again, I don't know whether um, those rights have been successfully um, in, used to to protect um, to protect the natural world. Um, the, some high courts in India have recognized rights for uh, the Ganges River in particular, um, but I also think that those uh, high courts have been overturned by um, appellate courts that are, that are even higher than them. Um, and all of this, too, uh, I, I realize that a lot of times people get really excited about um, other countries enacting rights of nature laws. Um, but in, in one sense, um, you cannot grant a, a river, for example, rights of nature. Um, you can't truly enforce those, those rights um, without granting all of nature rights, without granting the global nature rights. 
um, because massive ecosystems like rivers, like the Colorado River, for example, which I was involved in trying to get right rights for, depends upon the global water cycle. Um, so while it may be one thing for certain regions within in the world to um, enact rights of nature, um, there's still there's still not going not going to be enough until all regions have rights of nature and until all humans put the natural world at the center of our decision making. Um, so so I always like to temper the or the excitement over other countries enacting rights of nature with um, sort of a more sobering view of of uh, we need change really fast right now. And if we're good, if we expect rights of nature to solve the world's problems, um, we, we probably won't be around um, to see that. Um, and I mean that both within our lifetime, but also humanity as a whole whole may not be around to uh, ever truly um, use rights of nature. Right. So really what you're pointing out here more is that whatever it is that the legal system can or cannot do, it's within a very limited context. And that what we're looking at here more really is a cultural problem and not just a cultural problem of the United States or uh, even just of the Europeans, but perhaps we could say uh, a cultural problem of civilization, which looks at nature as something to use. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that is that is a, a wonderful way to put it um, um, and really gets to the heart of things. Um, I, I am someone who uh, considers myself anti-civilization. I don't think that humans or the natural world will ever truly be safe until civilization is dismantled. Now, if I'm going to say that, I have to be very clear about how to define civilization because there's sort of two competing views on civilization. Some, Most people, when they hear the word civilization, just think of, um, quote unquote, a high uh, state of emotion or of a high state of human culture, um, an advanced human culture, that that's what they think of, think of as, as civilization. Um, but the way, when, when I say that I'm against civilization, um, I define it as a culture uh, that both um, derives from and perpetuates the rise of cities, uh, with cities defined very specifically as human populations that have exceeded uh, their carrying capacity, human populations that exist in one place and, and um, have exceeded their carrying capacity and therefore require the importation of um, food, water, the other necessities of life um, from somewhere else um, to, to support them. And I think that uh, the history of civilization is really the, the history of the collapse of the natural world. Um, and we're as long as we as long as we continue to um, you know exceed the earth's carrying capacity for humans as well as uh, individual uh, ecosystems carrying capacity for for humans um, we're we're not going to save save the planet we the the ecology is going to collapse uh, everywhere I agree with the definition of civilization that you're using there. I understand how it is that most people use it. Oh, let's be civilized, people will say, meaning let's not be um, let's not be brutal or warlike or anything like that without recognizing that, of course, 
the things that they're saying are uncivilized are themselves hallmarks of civilization. I mean, the war, war in the sense that we think of it is now uh, as being this organized, uh, large-scale thing. That's something that could only come about once there was civilization, once there were uh, cities and then, and then city-states. Uh, previous to that, there uh, inevitably would have been human conflict in different ways, but it would have been much smaller scale, and it also perhaps would have been much more um, ritualized as well. Absolutely. Um, that makes me think of uh, sort of and another important point, which I think is um, when when as cities develop, as civilization develops um, and, and the people that live in in civilization and in these cities, um, as they start to use up the resources within their immediate vicinity, uh, um, th they have to get, they, you know, humans need food and water. Um, they need, they need, um, if they're going to, yeah, they need food and water specifically, but, but space, um, other things for shelter and clothes. But once you use all of those up in a specific area, you have a choice. You can either disperse and reduce your population and return to, um, a hunting and gathering lifestyle, or you can go steal it. Um, um, from someone else. And, and that's what people have been doing, doing um, for 10,000 years in civilization. And to, to, to tie this back to your point about being warlike, um, it, it's, it's, it's that, that's sort of where, um, you know, major, major warfare comes from is, is the fact that you had these, you had these populations of humans that got big because uh, they were exploiting the land uh, the land where they were no longer could support their their numbers. And whenever you have you have human beings that are are um, cornered into a situation where they they either starve or they steal food, um, they either uh, their cities either collapse or or they expand um, to steal resources from somewhere else. Most of the time they're going to steal from somewhere else um, and perpetuate civilization. Um, um, so, you know, war is integral to civilization. Civilization cannot exist without war. Uh, so it's no wonder, in my opinion, that the civilized have gotten so, um, adept at warfare. Um, you know, it's almost like when, when humans first started gathering in cities, um, there's a, there's, there's a logical, um, path that flows from there all the way to, um, you know, atomic bombs in our in our uh, current um, age. Um, so so yeah, warfare is integral to civilization. Yeah, and what neither of us have mentioned so far, but which is at the heart of the project of civilization is the institution of agriculture. And agriculture as different than mere gardening or horticulture, and certainly agriculture as being a different thing than the kind of land management, indigenous land management that existed uh, previous to agriculture, uh, because we think of uh, people who were doing gathering and hunting, and we think of people who were going out there you know, and just like picking berries and, and what have you, we don't think of them as also planting berries. And yet there is much evidence that they did and that they were working with their landscapes in that way. However, that was a way of doing things that was about working with wild plants in 
these wild habitats and with the animals that were there. And agriculture became something where, and this was also migratory for the most part, this kind of wild tending. So then agriculture is where we settled down and then, you know, made things permanent, but then also domesticated plants and domesticated animals. Uh, previous to this, the animals and plants that we were interacting with were still wild. We ourselves were still wild. It was this domestication uh, that came along with agriculture that seems to be at the heart of civilization. Yes. Um, yeah, agriculture uh, made these, these, these population explosions possible. Uh, so, um, you know, once, once, uh, civilized populations, um, started, chose to, to, I guess, do agriculture, once they, they started to, uh, clear forests, clear, um, wetlands, uh, clear plains, um, uh, of the, of the natural communities that existed there and all the countless species that, existed there to grow um, one crop or a few crops to grow corn or to grow rice or to grow wheat. Um, when they did that, they were able to support uh, larger human populations. But what they also did was um, they made, they normalized this destruction of, of natural communities all around them. Um, so, so like I was talking about um, this logical pathway from cities to atomic weapons, I think there's uh, also a logical pathway from um, agriculture, the beginning of agriculture, to um, this notion that nature is, is only an object. Um, if you're going to do agriculture, um, you, you have to first psychologically, in your own mind, objectify nature. You have to remove um, the sacred from, from what you find around you. Um, and and act as if that is an object that um, forests and plains and wetlands and rivers are only um, material to support your agriculture. Um, and, and, and once humans started doing that and more and more humans started living uh, in ways where they only knew agriculture, um, nature, nature's fate as property was was sealed in a sense or at least um, um, has become so normal to people that they don't even see, um, you know, how nature could be anything other than, than a lifeless object. Right. And it strikes me that agriculture is, and, and, and cities, all of this together are all tied up with patriarchy as well, with the subjugation of the feminine to the masculine or what is seen as the feminine to what is seen as the masculine. So you have mother nature, which is subjugated by 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 civilized by by agriculture, right? The wild, which is which is subjugated by the domestic and the domesticating. And then within human culture itself, you have women who are subjugated to men. In the, at the household level of a woman and the child being owned by the men. And this was a new thing that happened with these cities. And then uh, culturally of qualities considered masculine, subjugating those considered feminine. So war over peace, you know, for example. It's also telling that in, the, uh, in these, some of these first agricultural societies, uh, like in Assyria, we have the word for female slave appearing in writing uh, centuries before the word for male slave. 
Yeah. Uh, the phrase that comes to mind is oppression is always linked to resource extraction. Um, so uh, a lot of the activities that are um, essential or, or required by civilization, uh, things like um, working the fields, agriculture, uh, mining, um, are, these, are, these are occupations that are really hard work and most people don't want to do. Um, so if you're in power and, and you want to maintain your power, if you can convince, um, half the population that the other half of the population should be subjugated to you, then you create a, um, you create an automatic labor force. Um, you create the justifications for slavery. Um, also if you, if you can, um, undermine, uh, or, or if you can use women bodies for reproductive capacities if, if you need more people to so that you can have more fields so that you can grow more stuff and accumulate more wealth um, then then it, it it serves you very well to um, subjugate women and then uh, take advantage of of reproductive of reproduction um, and and of course that's that's why um, you know th things like the you know anti-abortion um, um, stuff is still so prevalent today, um, because especially now in the in the latest uh, the latest installment of civilization capitalism, the capitalists know that they need a consumer base, and um, if women have total control over their reproductive um, faculties, then um, they they usually. <laughs> They won't have as many children, uh, and, and then capitalists don't have um, this big uh, consumer base to sell their shit to. Uh, so yeah, that that um, I really I really love how you how you you work those questions to um, address very you know the root causes of of our environmental pr predicament today. Um, you know, civilization and the agriculture that is. Uh, that is required to support civilization and the patriarchy that paved the way um, um, to make sure that there were workers to do agriculture um, and then also to provide, as you said, this this psychological justification for um, domination and violation. Yeah, I mean, and the patriarchy is so obviously and so viciously still with us that it's I mean, it's impossible to ignore once once you see it, that it's there, you know, and then to see how far back it goes and to see, oh, this is much older than then it goes back. It goes back before class and it goes back before race. Like this is the original. This is like our original point of oppression here, you know, and, and the fact that it wasn't just uh, humans on humans, but about humans on the world. But it's also interesting what. Uh, you bring up about um, childbearing because, of course, uh, women did start having more babies with civilization. This was for a number of reasons, one of which is that they were uh, they shortened the amount of time that they were that they were nursing their children, because as long as a woman is still nursing, she's not ovulating. She's not she's not fertile. Right. And then also the migratory lifestyle itself just didn't lend itself as well to uh to having children so so there were fewer children so the population human population didn't really start to rise in a noticeable way until 
the institution of agriculture. And this brings us into this place where, you know, there's, as you know, there's a rather, um, there, there's, there's a, there's a passionate debate that goes on about, oh, is it consumption or is it population? And there's people who say, oh, our problems are all about overconsumption. And if you bring up overpopulation, then, you know, you're a eugenicist or whatever. I mean, you know what I mean? Like there's, that's, that's where it goes there. But it strikes me that a lot of the people who are saying, oh, it's not about population, it's about consumption, haven't really looked at, well, how far do we need to decrease consumption in order for this many people to be living on the planet and not have it be damaging? I wonder if these people who say that just live in cities and never get out and see the damage that's done to the world or something. I mean, that's that's me. I'm, I'm sure you have a thought about that as well. Yeah, I, that's that's a great point. Um, I think I've, I've been. Yeah, I mean, with. Um, you know, with with the film Planet of the Humans uh, being recently coming out and really in really pushing this this question um, into um, mainstream environmentalism, let's call it. Um, I, I've just been thinking about this a lot. And, um, you know, the way I understand it is that um, ecologists are are saying pretty emphatically that um there are just too many humans. Um, it's not just too many humans using too much, but um, it, there's just too many mouths to feed all around. Um, but I think um, I was listening to an interview that uh, Richard Manning um, was giving um, a, a few weeks ago, and, and he's the he's the author. Um, I mean, I'm sure you probably know, but the for for our listeners. He's he's the author of uh, this amazing book called Against the Grain, How Agriculture Hijacks Civilization. He he's not explicitly um, anti-civ, um, so to speak. But he I was listening to him talk about how um, he, he thinks that we're misunderstanding the way um, that we are actually already running out of food and have been running, running out of food for a long time. And that over the last few decades, as we're seeing things like diabetes rise, um, as, um, you know, other sorts of, of uh, dietary problems, heart disease, um, are on the rise that, you know, we might not have people completely starving, but we, people are so malnourished and misnourished. People are relying on grains, um, for so much of their diets when humans, um, you know, quite frankly, probably aren't supposed to eat domesticated grains. Um, and so, so, you know, what he was saying was just like, it, it may not be that we just have, uh, you know, millions of people starving, which we do around the world, but we don't see millions of people starving in, in places like the United States, but we do see millions of people that are malnourished, that they're just not getting the kinds of food that they, that they need. need. Um, and, and Richard Manning is, is very, very much, um, someone who, who thinks that we, you know, we do need a lot of anim animal protein and animal fat in our diets. Um, and where are we going to get those animal fats uh, when um, so much of, of the land um, is, is used for wheat production? 
Um, and then taking that even a step further, when industrial agriculture, so a lot of people automatically think of cows and pigs and chickens and that kind of thing, um, which also depend on all of that grain and all the corn that feeds them in, in at least an industrial um, agricultural context. Um, but but really what we need, really what we evolved to need is wild game, wild, wild meat. Um, and there's with with uh, the amount of um, um, you know, biodiversity loss, that's kind of, it's kind of a vague and abstract term, but with the way that uh, wildlife has been, um, ex- exterminated in, in the world in the last 50 years. So like the zoological society of London, uh, has said that we've lost 60% of all vertebrates on the planet since 1970. Um, when that is happening um, and humans have evolved to to need a uh, wild game and wild game needs um, habitat to survive in and we're also destroying that habitat where I'm going with this is it may not be possible to give humans optimal diets anymore um, and and that is horrifying to me and that's also a form of starvation um, in, in my opinion um, um, so, so yeah, I, I kind of lost where I was going. There. No, that's cool. That's, uh, I, that's a really good point that you make. And, and I think that there's, uh, I, I'm personally fascinated by the debate and by the literature and the explorations over what, uh, prehistoric or, um, uh, paleolithic diets looked like and i think that we don't have the the full answer on that i know and i'm not going to come down on on um on the specifics uh, of that you know uh, as to how much of that's meat and how much of that isn't but the point that you bring up that there's a very big difference between wild food and domesticated food that's just undeniable you know like the the nutrient content is different and if you've ever eaten uh, wild food, you can, and, and you're being attentive, you can just tell the difference as well. I remember the very first time that I ever ate, um, a yampa root. And, you know, yampa probably. It's, um, it's, it's, a, a widespread, uh, first food of the Great Basin, uh, area of the United States. It's in the humble family. It gets pretty little white flowers in the spring, and then you dig it up over the, the summer. And it tastes slightly like a carrot, you know, perhaps. But the feeling that you get or that I got, you know, just coursing through me after eating some of these was just something that I've never had from domesticated domesticated food. Also, the yampa uh, plant, like a lot of these plants, is a perennial plant, not an annual plant. And so perennial plants um, inter- inter- interact with their environments in different ways. And they're also able to, um, to, 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 to collect nutrients and build these things up in ways that annual plants simply don't have the time to do. So Yampa is going to pack a punch that a carrot never will in, a way, in, a, in that way of talking about it. Absolutely. Um, and that, you know, I, that makes me think, um, that makes me think about how we, we, we all, it's kind of, um, you know, a platitude at this point in, in the environmental movement that we need cultural change. 
we're going to save the planet with cultural change. Um, and I think that when people say that they, I don't think, I don't disagree, first of all, but I think that most of the time when we say that most people automatically think of changing primarily people's beliefs, um, and the way they feel about the natural world, um, there is talk about changing behavior, and that kind of gets into the the uh, overconsumption um, thing. But I don't think people think specifically about um, what it's going to mean if if we're going to have truly, um, let's say, sustainable food systems. Um, if we're going, if people in the Great Basin, um, if if the if the wild foods that they should be eating in the in Great Basin, which grow already in the Great Basin, um, which which um, you know do not need a lot of exploitation to harvest or or grow, you know, it's not corn or it's not cotton. Um, the if 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 yamper roots offer an opportunity to live in balance with the great basin and gain the nutrition that humans need what will it take um to to return humans to a population uh and a culture that uh um is is existing in that way um who is going to oppose that kind of change which corporations which governments which paramilitary groups are going to um, are going to actively and violently oppose our um, our path to get to to something like that? Um, and it's it's just it's something that I've just been thinking a ton about. With with you know more and more people seem to be uh, waking up to uh, the fact that um, the United States only exists through violence. Um, the United States um, and, and and settler colonialism has always been about exploiting uh, people and the land, um, and and starting to to really I think start to see that violence and see that overt violence. And I, I've just been thinking a lot about how um, you know how do we get to uh, get, get to these places? How do we change culture? What does it mean to change culture? Um, and, and, and rights of nature is, is part of that. Um, but what I've been frustrated with in the rights of nature movement is that it's too much of just a simple education, um, plan, trying to get people to respect nature in their minds. Um, when we really need to have a conversation about how, how would we enforce notions like rights of nature? How would we actually, um, protect uh, when the courts strike down uh, rights of nature laws, when when the government makes those laws illegal, like they did in Ohio, Ohio a few months ago, um, how do we actually protect um, natural communities so that we can have a culture in which to change? <clears throat> right. I really appreciate that you bring this up, this topic of culture change. I, I believe you you mentioned this in When Dams Fall. I, I think so. I, I, I've been reading a bunch of your stuff the last couple of days, so I can't remember where I saw it. But yeah, when it comes to changing the culture, there's the two things, as you mentioned, there's the what does that look like, the change in culture, and how do we get there? And so the first part of what it looks like, well, to get back to the people saying, you know, that, that we need to change our consumption. I mean, and obviously I agree that we need to change our consumption, but that that's all it is. Well, that level of change in, uh, of consumption, that level of culture change really means 
um, dismantling civilization. It does. That's that's the only way to get to that place. So then, yeah, how do we get there? Now, I'm really fortunate to have met some really interesting people the last few years who, on a small scale, on their own, have been, and mostly in the Great Basin, have been trying to um, get back to some of those wild tending lifestyles that existed then you may have heard of the um uh, of Phoenicia Medrano who recently who recently passed away she was someone who was really well known in this in this area for over 30 some years and I know a lot of people who work with her I got to spend some time with her myself and so I know people who are out there and what they do is they go out and they dig the yampa when it's time to dig the yampa but they also collect the seeds and they plant the seeds and they bring the seeds from one area to another area I know people in this scene who are out where the forest fires happened in California and where those burns happened the last few years, they're going in and they're replanting uh, food plants along the watercourses there. Some of it native, some of it not native. And so there's a whole discussion that happens there as well. Now, so far, the interest in this has been small enough or narrow enough that uh, the people doing this work are hardly noticed, you know? And so and 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 there are people who tried to stop Phoenicia and there are people who try to stop, uh, you know, some of my friends, maybe every once in a while in that um, you're not supposed to be planting on public land or whatever. And this is what they're they're doing, you know, but that's 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 small scale. And as the as they um, continue to defund the. The, the, the government, there's going to be fewer rangers out there watching. So that's not an issue. So it really does. Uh, I am intrigued by where you were then pointing when you were talking about um, uh, militias or other uh, people out there, like regular people not from the government. How are they going to um, how are they going to resist these changes that need to happen? Yeah, I. Um, you know, I, I, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of ways to go. I mean, the, one of the first things that pops into my head is, is the Bundys and, um, they're, um, you know, they, they, they were the, um, the ultra conservative, um, um, white, uh, group that occupied the mall here, um, wildlife refuge in Oregon a few years ago, which, um, happened to also be, well, all, all of this continent is, 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 um, you know, native land, but, uh, this happened to be a, a very, um, specific, uh, place for, for indigenous peoples in the area. Um, and they, they occupied that, um, that wildlife refuge because they were sick of paying, um, they were sick of paying taxes to run their cattle on uh, federal land. And, um, and they, a part of their ideology, um, comes from, uh, I believe that they, that they were, they were Mormons and they believe that, um, because Mormon settlers got to Utah before were, uh, you know, before it was, um, I think officially even a territory, but uh, definitely a state that the Mormon, uh, kingdom existed, uh, in this territory, um, before the, 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 the United States government did so that they actually had a, a stronger, um, <laughs> claim to legitimate government, government of, 
of the federal government and, of course, completely ignored uh, uh, First Nations um, existence in all of this um, and who the land was actually stolen from. And, and my point of bringing this up is they that's their culture. They believe this and they were willing to pick up guns and occupy a government building. And in fact, I believe shoot back at federal uh, agents that came to, um, to move them off this land. Um, what happens when, um, you know, when subsidies for say the, the, the cattle ranching in industry, um, start to disappear, and and people like that um, who who truly believe that they own the land, uh, who truly believe that uh, it's their God given right to run cattle on on um, land in the West, um, and they are um, you know I don't want to give them too much credit, but probably more trained in firearms use than most uh, environmentalists are. Um, what happens when those people um, start to take matters into their own hands? Um, and, you know, I guess we've also seen, um, we've also seen the armed, uh, conservative groups that, uh, were, you know, were so against the shelter in place orders, marching on state capitals with their guns, demanding that, that economies, um, start up again. Um, and I just, I just think that this is something that so few of us are talking about. If, if we're going to uh, change culture, um, and if we're if we're truly going to do it, and if we're going to revolutionize the way um, culture exists and the way human populations um, live on land, um, we're going to have to have the means to to defend ourselves while we're doing that. I guess is the way I see it, um, and and I, that's just something that I've been. Uh, you know, really troubled by, um, because, you know, I think it's absolutely necessary, uh, to spread the Yamper route and to do that kind of, kind of work. Um, but, but I also think that, um, we should be having a conversation about how to ensure that, that people who, who focus on that kind of work can keep doing that work, um, as, as things get darker and, um, as, as, uh, people who just don't see the world like we do um, and, in fact, um, are willing to violently uh, impose their will uh, on, on other people um, start to start to fight back. <clears throat> right. So all of that kind of brings up the issue of white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and um, you wrote um, here. I took I took note of something that you wrote recently. You said, "Has white supremacy ever been alleviated, or has it only transformed, become more insidious in some contexts, more overt in others? Has white supremacy dissipated in some geographic locations only because it may exist more fully in others? Is white supremacy stronger today than it was 500 years ago? Is it weaker, or is it simply different?" And then you said, I study human supremacy more thoroughly, and it seems quite obvious that human supremacy is stronger than it ever was. I've also, I, I've always seen the logic of these two types of supremacies as similar. So is white supremacy stronger than ever? And if it is, what are the strategic implica implications of this reality? Yeah, um, 
I guess by strategic impl- implications, that's what you were just talking about, about saying that they're armed and, and other people aren't, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I, I also think about things like, uh, so what, where, what I was getting at, um, or what I'm envisioning when I'm talking about white supremacy being, you know, um, in, exported to, to other places. Um, I can't remember my own phrase, <laughs> but to other geographic locations, um, is just the way that, um, you know, there, there's not there, right now for the most part, um, there are not pitched battles between American forces and, uh, indigenous resistance forces, uh, in the, in the, t- the territories of the so-called United States. So um, it's not like um, back in, in in the time when um, Custer was fighting the Sioux. However, there are places um, that the United States uh, exports resources from that that is happening. Um, um, places like uh, Nigeria, where where Shell is is you know, and and other oil companies, um, you know are you know moving people off their land land with violently there is resistance this is like um in brazil uh, where indigenous peoples um you know are being forced um to to wage um you know militant resistance against these forces uh what like what does it mean to fight white supremacy um to know that that's going on and then to insist on um, purely nonviolent uh, tactics here in the heart of empire. Um, that's that's what I'm I'm really getting at. And then I also, you know, for human supremacy, I, human supremacy people are even more blind to than, than white supremacy. And uh, I think about this all the time with the rights of nature movement, where rights of nature is fundamentally about convincing those in power to start seeing the world differently. It's fundamentally about convincing judges to start to um, order armed men and women in the police to protect nature. Um, But as time passes and more of the natural world is is destroyed, as time passes and more people of color are destroyed, um, and we we may have the means to more effectively um, stop that destruction um, through more direct uh, tactics. You know, is it time to have that conversation? Is it time to think that way? And, um, you know, are we not in some ways perpetuating human supremacy or perpetuating white supremacy by um, insisting that there's only one way for um, for change, one way for cultural change, um, and and not um, exploring these more serious options. Right, because to to some degree, well, to a large degree, to follow a particular set of rules about what resistance looks like is merely to be upholding civilization and upholding human supremacy because the two you know obviously go together you know and and it's interesting because when we when you talk about well when we talk about um uh convincing people or arguments or or this kind of thing whether in the legal realm or within 
you know, conflicts, like you're saying, um, I, I, you, you mentioned, uh, and this is, this is from, this is from your book, um, when dams fall, you quote John Livingston, uh, who he says in the fallacy of wildlife conservation, quote, on the basis of some experience in conservation affairs, I am at last persuaded that mere argument as such is entirely worthless. Argument, it seems to me, is never going to help wildlife. It rarely has, and there is little to persuade me that it ever will, appreciably. I believe that wildlife preservation is entirely dependent on individual human experience. And I think by that, what what uh, he was talking about, what you were talking about was the individual human experience of the wild itself. So that's that's emotional, then. That's not intellectual. Yeah, it's... So I'm, I'm, I'm currently um, uh, living out of my car on the road, uh, doing a writing project for the Ohio River. Um, and um, that quote is really at the heart of, of this project with the Ohio River. Um, I'm just not sure, you know, as a, as a lawyer, as a writer, um, whose stock and trade has been um, persuasion, uh, you know, intellectual persuasion for, um, you know, the last um, nearly 10 years. Um, it just doesn't seem to work. It, it, I, I just don't think that um, we're going to convince very many people by saying or or um, by saying, did you know that um, 95% of the old growth forests in the United States are have been destroyed since Europeans got here? Um, I just don't think people care. And I, I just don't think that it, it, it accesses um, that part of, of human consciousness, your heart, um, your emotions. Um, it doesn't really catalyze um, or stir people to, to any kind of action. Um, and so what I'm trying to do with the Ohio River Project is, is try to make it more emotional, try and touch people's hearts, bring, bring these problems home, um, um, describe them in a way that um, people understand that they are truly threatened. If, if COVID-19 has taught us anything, people um, will take at least bigger steps towards change um, based purely on fear. Um, and, and again, another platitude in the environmental movement is we can't use fear-based tactics. And I'm asking why not? Um, if you know we just saw COVID-19 kept everybody inside, what if people felt um, the th threats to the natural world as keenly as they felt threats um, to to their their selves? Um, you know, one one line that I've <laughs> that I've been saying a lot lately is they may not be, um, and this, I guess, doesn't work for the last few weeks, they may not be um, shooting bullets at us, but they're shooting carcinogens at us into our water, into our air. Um, people are dying because of these things. It may not be as immediate as a bullet hitting you, but it's happening. Um, and so, um, and then the other thing I wanted to say about the, the Livingston quote is that quote horrifies me because um, the natural world is being destroyed so quickly it, it, the, and the destruction is intensifying um, and it's getting to a point where I'm afraid that many humans uh, are losing 
the possibility, losing the opportunity to experience wilderness, to gain that that individual experience that Livingston is talking about, um, that may be the only way to actually um, catalyze uh, a human heart um, to, to to take action. Um, and if if that is true, um, then cultural change um, has to be at least as much about um, physically protecting the natural natural world, physically ensuring that there are wild places left, um, or else we're not going to be able to change culture. And so if our strategies, which right now can almost 100% of our strategies are uh, focused just on education, um, there are great grassroots groups that are doing events I do not mean to overlook, um, you know, the, the, the indigenous blockades that we've seen rate recently. Um, but I think on the whole, the environmental movement is ignoring uh, Livingston's quote. Um, and um, I just, we talk about shifting baseline syndromes with with forests or with species um, or with fish. Um, what if we talked about shifting baseline syndromes with with culture and, and the human heart? Um, and does there become a point where um, it may be impossible to get people to fall in love with nature because they just never have truly experienced it. Um, that's terrifying to me. I totally hear you. And that is a large part of what has been on my mind and has been inspiring my own, my own work and my own writing over the last few years. I, I was raised in cities and grew up in cities and moved out to the West Coast in the early 2000s. And there I was fortunate enough to, um, when I moved to Portland, I happened to move in across the street from the Cascadia Forest Alliance who were tree sitters. So I got to go out and I was doing indie media uh, activism at the time. So as an indie media reporter, I visited the old growth, some old growth forests in Oregon and got to go up in tree sets and got to experience it. And of course, was just blown away because you you just are blown away when you're around trees that are that old and that magnificent and that and that beautiful, you know. In a state of shock after the war. We interrupt our program for a brief message. If you appreciate this podcast, please consider supporting Colibri on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Colibri. That's K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. And now, back to our regularly scheduled... And then starting from 2011 on, I've been living in rural areas, uh, sometimes as a farmer and uh, supporting myself, and then sometimes as a seasonal agricultural worker um, in Northern California on some of the cannabis farms. And so I've been living, you know, during that time, like the last five years until recently, I was living out of my truck a lot of that time, like you are, um, you know, and um camping out in the deserts in the winter time and then and then working and being in the forests and the hills you know in the in in the summer and seeing these beautiful places that most people were seeing and just being coming so aware of how profoundly disconnected nearly everyone who lives in a city is from the world you know like 
everyone's aware of their job and their boss and how much of a jerk they are and like you know they they they're they're familiar with these streets that they go on every day and they're familiar with this bar that they go to and i mean you know, uh, maybe they notice trees changing colors. Maybe they notice flowers or something like that. But, you know, like the city is so is so artificial and so constricting and so narrow. And yet it is within this narrowness that most people are living their entire lives completely unaware of the world that exists that's that's um, from which all the resources are, are coming for them to, to live this. And so I, I, uh, I, you know, I think photography maybe can help more than, than writing, maybe video. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't feel, I don't feel particularly, uh, hopeful that, uh, my work has had that much of an impact because I do think that the in-person experience simply can't be replaced. Yeah. Yeah. I, it makes me, yeah, that makes me think about, um, and I, and, and Livingston talks about this in, um, the, the fallacy of wildlife conservation about, um, how animals that are in cages, um, or their habitats are severely restricted, um, quite, quite literally go insane, go crazy. Um, or if their or if their populations are forced to um, exist too much on top of each other, um, they go crazy. And he he questions what that means for um, humans and cities. And it makes me wonder, um, you know, it makes me think about can we can there be cities on earth? and um, earth be safe? Can there be humans that live in cages like that? Um, and, and, I, and I understand that, you know, cities aren't exactly prisons, but um, I think it, they achieve some of the same thing, things. And we have cities with these big populations and they, um, and and a lot of people are going crazy in these cities. Um, and maybe maybe we just define insanity as defining nature as an object or um, not being able to see why uh, clear cutting a forest to grow corn is is ho- horrible. Um, what if you know? What if those humans will always, uh, um, you know, exploit the natural world and, in doing so, gain power over uh, over humans who do not um, live in that way? Um, it, and what I'm getting at is, is I think that cities are antithetical to um, sustainability. That's a problematic word, but are antithetical to. Um, a sane culture where where humans can can live in balance with the natural world and um, can live in a way that's not um, exploitative to each other. Um, um, and then, so <laughs> so then, when we're talking about cultural change, um, can we change culture without dismantling cities? Um, and that's like that's as radical. And as deep down as I as I think we, you know, people like Livingston have pointed out, um, your experiences in the cities have have pointed out how 
I I just spent a week in the um, Allegheny National Forest near Warren, Pennsylvania, um, for this Ohio River project, and then um, I I needed some Wi-Fi. You know, I was doing this interview and and needed to to just be online for a while. So I came down into Pittsburgh, and I I immediately got you know anxious and um, you know my my gut was just you know roiling. Um, um, I'm walking down the street and like everything, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm flinching at sounds and, you know, cars would pull up to me and they're just parking on the side of the road. But I'm like, I'm instantly, you know, thinking that someone is, is attacking me or something. Um, and, and that, to that, I think, um, must breed, um, um, a culture where, where humans are competitive and, and violent. And, um, um, you know, we have to, we're going to have to undermine that. I think, I think the changes that we need will have to be deep enough that, that we look to those very, um, deep, uh, roots of culture, the habitat that we live in, um, to see what it will actually take to change culture. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that talking about what it's the, the idea of that, that living in a city is like being an animal in a cage, I think, you know, we obviously see a lot of anxiety, depression, uh, what people call mental illness going on in these places as, as, as a result of these conditions, you know. But I would also bring in then... Uh, well, not but, but and I would also bring in the, the very famous quote from Jiddu Krishnamurti that you've probably heard, which is that it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And I'll just say that again, because yeah. it's such it's such a great quote. It is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Right. And yet when we have, you know, and, and I've dealt with, uh, you said in your writing, you've dealt with anxiety and depression in your life. And I, and I have too, I, I, I get that. And so I, I look at that and I'm like, well, how much of that is illness per se? And how much of that is a completely understandable reaction to living in a profoundly sick society? And I was thinking about this just recently, and I was thinking about this term gaslighting that we hear so much now, you know? So gaslighting, that's this concept that's, uh, that's when someone tries to convince you that you're crazy so that they can control you, right? And so I was having this stray thought of like, well, how much of the very, how much of the concept of mental illness is itself gaslighting us saying, oh, look, you're crazy, you know? That's, that's brilliant. Um, that's brilliant. I, yeah, um, I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, life, something that's, that's, uh, maybe the, the most basic premise that my work is based upon is, uh, that the natural world, um, or we, that can be synonymous with life. Uh, is always speaking to us. We we live, uh, we kind of swim through the messages uh, that the natural world is sending us, that life is sending us. 
And one, one way that I understand depression in that context is um, depression, um, you know, my, 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 I've, I've been diagnosed with major depression for 11 years. Um, I have tried to kill myself twice. Um, I bring this up to, to explain that um, figuring out depression has been an, an obsession of mine. Um, and I look at why, why am I obsessed with um, figuring out depression? The primary reason is depression hurts so bad and pain uh, asks the question. Pain, we want to know the source of our pain. Pain asks us, why am I hurting? How do I hurt? Um, how did this happen? And um, I think that that questioning, depression sort of started that that questioning. And then as I start to follow that questioning um, beyond just, well, um, you know, you have this chemical imbalance in the brain, um, you, you know, this sort of uh, standard uh, mainstream medical descriptions of, of depression, and you start to look at uh, well, there, there may actually be social causes. Maybe you live in an economy where there's so much competition that you're stressed so much that um, your fight or flight uh, hormones are, are activated so much of the time that it is affecting um, um, your brain's ability to regulate other emotions. Um, and then, you know, what does it mean um, when when we no longer live in the habitats, uh, we no longer have the cultural um, ceremonies, cultural, um, um, the cultural conditions that we evolved to need. We, we, we don't live with, for, the, for most of us, don't live with our parents and grandparents and extended family. Uh, most of us, um, you know, parents, most parents don't have, um, very much childcare help. There's not a there's not a whole community there trying to to help them um, take care of their children. And um, so what I'm getting at is depression. Life <laughs> depression hurts really bad. And 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 I think that life is telling depressed people that there's something wrong. There's something very wrong with um, with this culture. Um, so just to 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 dovetail into what you're saying um you know yes i think that depression is a message from life that things are really bad and that pain is a motivator to try and try and figure out the source of that pain try and try and take the 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 figure out how deep that source goes not just not just the individual but taking it to a social and cultural and then environmental level um and um, I do think that, um, you know, I, I also think that they're depressed people, at least for me, um, one of the ways that I, I manage depression is um, by, by, by doing things that work against um, other people feeling depression. Um, that's a really sloppy way of saying um, I it helps me to manage my depression when I am um, fighting the conditions that create depression. And um, I think that there is a role for, for people that um, experience depression. 
Um, and that is to be um, a, a voice, you know, those dark, those darknesses that we experience, the pain that we experience, the anxiety that we experience, I think we're supposed to talk about it. I think we're supposed to be um, telling the rest of the world that we hurt in this really um, invisible way. And it's a sign that things are really fucked up. Um, and, you know, I think the same could go for, for people who are diagnosed with environmental cancers and other sort of diseases. Um, but, um, yeah, I, that's something I, I, I feel very strongly about. And, and maybe, uh, if people are listening to this who struggle with depression, um, maybe a way to kind of reframe this is, is, you know, there's, there's something about our makeup that life, uh, wants to use to, to um, help help everyone understand um, how bad things are. Um, I also don't mean to um, cast depression in a positive light. It's it's horrible and, and hurts really bad. Um, but maybe there's a role for us. Right. I think that empathy and sensitivity are two things that you're starting to point out when you say that, you know, like what are the things about someone that might, might bring about depression uh, for them? And that would be, that would, that would be two of them because you said, you know, life is, is uh, or the living world is always speaking to us. And I, I definitely agree to that. I think that as these species are going extinct, as these habitats are being destroyed, etc., there are cries for help and cries of anguish and cries of pain that are going out from literally millions of creatures. And they're there, and we are swimming through those. We are not trained in this culture at all to identify that that is the source. We're not trained in our culture to identify our own pain as the source of these things. Uh, we're not trained. Uh, we, in fact, we're really discouraged from being sensitive, from being empathetic to the other living creatures in the world or to our own uh, feelings and our own sensitivities. Because, of course, pain uh, is a just the existence of the just feeling pain is not in itself a bad thing. It's a sign of health. I mean, if I put my hand down on the stove and, oh, the burner's on, that's a really great thing that I felt that pain and moved my hand before it got injured badly enough for me to go to the hospital. I'm grateful for that pain. So in my own struggle with depression over the years, I've tried in part to look at it that way. And it sounds like uh, it sounds like we've sort of been along similar lines or coming to similar conclusions and that seeing that the depression is is a message that's being sent you know and and something to something something for me to listen to and and to respond to and i also really like what you said about how uh if we are people who have these experiences that we should be sharing them with other people and and that in that way um perhaps i've not always been uh as forthright and some of that i think would probably be the result of um, uh, male socialization, you know, in this culture, which I, I <laughs> which, as you know, is is really oppressive in its own way. And then the only other thing I would add to that topic is: Have you heard of uh, Bruce Levine? I, I know the name, um, 
but I don't know why I know that name. <laughs> okay, well, you, you, you've written on Counterpunch, I think, a few times. He he writes on Counterpunch regularly. He's, I think, what you'd call a dissident psychiatrist, you know. And so he's 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 trained in that field, you know. Uh, but 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 he's 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 um, not limited to the narrowness of that field, and he makes very compelling arguments um, against. The, the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness. And he points out in his writing how um, that idea has actually been, it's actually been considered disproven in the field for years now. However, it caught on in a popular way and so is still out there in the popular culture. And of course, that serves the pharmaceutical companies really well. And so uh, personally at this point, um, I feel comfortable um, I feel comfortable setting aside the chemical imbalance theory when it comes to myself or a lot more most people who I've met who who have depression instead to be looking at at other things because I don't think it, it it's serving me or other people to look at it that way and I think that it's inaccurate. Yeah, um, yeah, it. it... Yeah, I mean that 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 makes total sense, and um, yeah, it is. I mean, and uh, even you know, even what you just said there, like um, about like look at look at what uh, we can learn um, in through through understanding depression. Um, you can also. Uh, begin to understand, um, you know, capitalism. You can you can understand uh, how the pharmaceutical industry um, um, manipulates health and manipulates messages around health, um, and it just it just makes me think that um, you know life really wants to live, and and we go out in the natural world and it seems like we are surrounded by examples of the way that life. Uh, finds new ways to create more life in all sorts of of situations, all sorts of um, habitats, and and all all places around the world. Um, and that to me is just profoundly beautiful. Um, and and so so it's also we're engaging in life we are aligning ourselves with life when we try to um, express our experiences of depression um, in in a way that helps us understand life and threats to life and ultimately will help us um, you know hopefully create more life and contribute to this billions of years old uh, story that that is life that that has been unfolding um, yeah, that's just just really beautiful to me. To me, uh, all of this helps to feed what you've referred to as well as um, a sense of urgency about the planet. Because as um, as these feelings of, of loss, you know, uh, and rage, you know, come up when I see that, oh, wait a minute, this isn't this isn't just about me and me being wrong or me being broken. This is about me living in a place where uh, the culture is oppressive and abusive of people and of the environment. And so looking at that and then seeing, oh, look how bad it's gotten. Look how, how quickly it's getting 
it's getting bad. Like we just don't, we don't have much time. It feels like to me. Yeah, I, and I, I, I always push it even one step farther and say, um, we've so many, so much, so many of us, so many species, uh, so many humans have ran out of time. Um, you know, uh, yesterday, one thing, yeah, yesterday, a hundred between 100 and 200 species went extinct. Maybe it's a little bit lower because of of economic slowdowns because of COVID-19. But okay, so between 50 and 100 species went extinct yesterday. Time ran out for them. Um, and for me, every every day that passes before we achieve, um, a, you know, a true victory, that the the full victory of 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 um, truly biocentric and biophilic cultures diminishes any diminishes that victory that we'll get to. Um, and I'm not saying that we need to focus on that all the time. Um, though I do think that a lot of people don't think about it ever because they're too afraid of, of the implications, um, of thinking like that. Um, but it, it, it pushes into another thing that I, you know, one of the, the themes of this conversation is just like, how would we act if we took that to heart? How would we act if we considered all of the beings who are currently being destroyed, who have been destroyed uh, since civilization began? Um, how would we act um, if we saw them as our kin, as our family, as our friends? Um, you know, I, I, I know how many of us would act if somebody attacked one of our, um, you know, our, our brother or sister, our mom or dad, a, a close family member. Um, why, you know, why aren't we, why don't we view the natural world who just as integral to giving us life as, as our family is? Um, why don't we view the natural world in the same way? It's and I think the answer to that is just because we don't we don't see it. I mean, to to sort of bring around to 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 some current events, like there's been these protests going on around the whole country lately over the death of George Floyd, right? And that's been uh, I, I've I've been inspired by that to see so much of that energy coming up and to see it seems like the conversation really is changing to me. This doesn't feel like this is just another protest, but that this actually has the, the chance to sort of push us to another, to another level on, on, on some things. And so there, what was getting that energy going was these videos, you know, the, well, first of all, the video of George Floyd that went around that showed the horrific action that it did. And then the videos that kept going around after that showing here's people going on on the street saying, hey, we're tired of the police being violent and then the police being violent to these people. And so that just fed the fed the fire. And so what that showed us is that people can get incited, you know, but we haven't had something like this happen that is inciting people about the environment. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, yeah, that that's a that's a tremendous point, and and yeah, it. And what would that even be? Right. Um, 
Yeah, and and in some ways that's that's the most important question right now. How do we? What is it? What is going to incite people? What is um, you know? What are those images or those? Um, what is the impetus going to be? Um, and yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that's that's one of the reasons why it's so great that that you write and do the do this podcast and you do the work that you do. Um, and 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 one one way that we we you know people who are biophilic, um, earth centered, um, people who who do sense a kinship with with the natural world and, and non humans. We have to be unapologetic about um, how that how that is is uh, the I mean the proper way to experience the world, or if not proper, it is the way that humans have experienced the world uh, since we evolved into humans, um, and it's only been um, since kind of civilization uh, that we've forgotten those those that kinship um and we've been trained not to since that kinship um but but yeah the the main point i'm trying to make is just that we have to we have to keep talking about this and we have to keep um being unapologetic being straightforward and 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 hopefully as 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 this destruction continues um people can start to see it for what it really is yeah, I listened yesterday to the latest episode of Patrick Farnsworth's podcast, uh, Last Born in the Wilderness. I think you've been on that one. And he uh, talked to Chris Hedges, and they were talking about the George Floyd protests. And Chris Hedges, you know, as you probably know, used to be a foreign correspondent for, I believe, the New York Times. And so he has seen uh, revolutions uh, and revolutionary activity himself in person in Central America, in the former Yugoslavia, I believe also uh, somewhere in the former uh, East Bloc, you know? And so one thing that he said that really made a big impression on me is that revolutions are instigated by emotion, not by facts or arguments or stats or anything like that, but emotion, and that they are unpredictable and that... Uh, until they happen, he says that they're rarely foreseen. It's just something that, that comes up. It starts out like any other kind of protest or complaint or whatever, but then something happens and suddenly it's just there. And so, uh, you know, he says it's too early to tell if what's happening in the United States, because of all the stress that's happening here, is is going to turn into that or not, you know. But just the, the fact that he said it's about emotion and it's unpredictable really stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would totally agree with him. Uh, well, I mean, I don't have nearly the experience he does in, um, witnessing revolutions or understanding how, how revolutions, um, how they start. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that, you know, Europeans especially have been sold on this notion that 
Um, everything happens intellectually. Everything happens through our, through you know, our minds or our rational minds, um, and that's that's where um, most that's where you change reality or that's where reality happens. Um, but you know, I think I don't think it's controversial anymore to really say that behavior is is motivated by um, by much much more. In fact, rationality hardly has. Um, I mean, I don't want to say it has nothing to do with it because some of us sometimes make good choices, but um, emotions and our unconscious and and environmental uh, factors play such a such a larger role and and science is really confirming this for us in in how we behave um so yeah i i from what i understand that that sounds right um and also i i also and i'm definitely not saying you're saying this or chris hedges is saying this but i also don't want us to think that um, because we don't recognize the roots of revolution right now, that means that they're forming, um, because I think that encourages a complacency that, um, we can't afford now. Um, and so, um, I, I hope, I hope that, that there are roots forming that we can't see that, um, that, you know, a revolution is right around the corner. Um, um, however scary that's going to be and, and it will will be scary but um i also um don't don't want people to fall into the trap of well because we can't see it um or we can't see it but it, it is it is happening um and instead think you know we should assume um that it's that it's not happening so that we can um work at just as hard to to ensure it does happen Right. Because uh, on this topic of cultural change, you know, and the two questions of what does it look like and how do we get there? Maybe what this is pointing at, what, what Chris Hedges is saying and what we're talking about, maybe what it's pointing at is that there is not a there is not an answer to the question of how we get there, that that how we get there is going to be uh, out of our hands. That's going to be a spontaneous thing that happens. However, what we can do is as individuals and then collectively to whatever degree we are able to act collectively is to prepare ourselves to be ready and be ready to respond uh, when that process is, is clearly is clearly happening. So that would require some uh, agility, for example, uh, you know, in, in one's way of looking at life of like being being ready to, to, to drop what we're doing now and to drop what I think is the best way of doing things because, oh, now the circumstances have changed. And so that uh, then points towards the necessity of doing what some people would call perhaps internal work, uh, what some people would refer to as spiritual work. Yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah, that I, I think that's really true. That's um, yeah, that that part, yeah, that part about um, yeah, being prepared. That is that is that is yeah. I, <laughs> I don't really know what else to say because I think that that's that's a really good point. Um, and um, 
that that spiritual preparation or um you know getting our ourselves uh ready or sort of living in a way that we're constantly ready um th- that's something that that's really really important um um yeah I, I i really like that and that's that is something to think about um that is really something to think about <laughs> yeah it's something i try to, to to think about and you know and i've been thinking about it for years and i think that you know one way that that, that people can start on that road is to uh, think of like one practical skill or something like that that they would like to pick up on. Like, so for example, right now, um, you just go to the store to get your food, you go to the store to get your clothes and you, you know what I mean? All this and that, like we're just buying all the things, you know, and then we spend all this time uh, trying to come up with the money to buy these things, right? So even though those things are there to be bought or whatever, like what are some, what are some of the practical skills that um, are necessary for providing for ourselves. So what is it like to try to grow food for oneself? You know, what is it like to try to make one's own clothes, you know, for example? And um, those practical skills may or may not end up being useful later, but the, uh, the, the practice of trying to learn them is one that breaks us out of our habits, that breaks us out of our dependence, that breaks us out of our subservience, really. And and so through a practical action like that, that can then have an effect on uh, maybe on our minds and on our ideas and our ways of approaching things that that can that can help to free us, not just in a practical way, you know, as the as the preppers, you know, like, well, okay, I'm going to load all this stuff up and now I'm going to be ready. Well, no, it's not just about that. It's about how is your mind going to be ready, but that we can make our mind ready by doing these practical things. I would, I would put that one out there. I love that. I think, yeah, I love that. I think that that, you know, that also, uh, that also, seems to reflect, you know, I think that's how we learn, uh, just in, like, just full stop. You know, we, um, if, you know, like I said, I, I've, I've been doubting whether my, whether my writing is actually capable of, of inciting people to action. Um, maybe that's because I've, you know, I've overlooked a very, um, simple, the, the the very simple point that you just made or or that your your point um leads me to which is you know we we learn by doing and our lot yeah lots of knowledge opens up when when we start to uh use our bodies when we start to um, um you know practical skills i think uh there's something inherent in practical skills that that focuses you on what's in your in your surrounding environment um what you know it it it, in some ways it 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 helps you it roots you to um it it roots you to something that is immediate and concrete um um, which also happens to be the natural world (laughs) um it, it it helps us it maybe helps us step out of um, step out of the internet to step out of our screens um, and 
um, yeah, just get start to build at the heart of what we're talking about, I think, is 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 building a relationship with the natural world, understanding relationships with the natural world um, and a practical skill. Yeah, seems like a great avenue toward towards um, building that um, that practical skill skill. Um, and then it, it just also triggered this thing, you know, I do love writing and and. Um, you know, I often say that, you know, the, I only understand something, uh, when I write it. Um, but through my own writing, my own writing practice is, is, is through listening to the natural world. I go out into the natural world and try and, and sincerely listen. Um, and so, yeah, I, my own experience through that. So in trying to gain a practical skill, the skill of, of writing, uh, the skill of writing nature, um, writing about nature, I was, it, all of a sudden I noticed way more things in my immediate environment than, than I would have otherwise. Um, um, so yeah, it, my own experience definitely, ref, definitely jives with, with what you're saying. I think that's totally true. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways of of breaking out and a lot of different ways to try it. I mean, for me, one thing that was really helpful when I lived um, in Portland, Oregon, I became an urban farmer and I was actually riding my bike around to a bunch of different plots around the city. And I had a CSA with customers who were paying and this and that. I did that for like four years or something. And that was a lot of fun. But one of the things that was really great about it was that as soon as you're focusing on plants and on trying to grow plants for food, what are you paying attention to all the time? The weather. And the weather suddenly becomes a really significant thing. The fact that you can't control the weather becomes a significant thing. The fact that your responses to mitigating the effects of weather are very limited. This becomes a big thing too. And so um, it, so, so by, by trying to, to farm in the city, it put me into, into contact with things in an intimate way that I hadn't had to have paid attention to, you know, before. And what I, what I saw very quickly was that the priorities and cycles of farming, and that is to say the priorities and cycles of, of plants are completely at odds with the priorities and cycles of urban life, you know? And so it really, it really pointed out to me how, how disconnected, you know, urban life is, you know, well, from there, then it, it just, it becomes this thing of like craving that, uh, craving that experience of not being trapped in that movie before. So that's how I would hope. And I, and I, you know, and there's lots of ways that people could do that, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping that that that's, that's where people could go is just to, to, to see, uh, how their own experience has been limited to see how their own freedom has been limited, you know, and then to make choices where they're enhancing that freedom and widening that experience, you know, instead. Do you have like a, like kind of like a, a fantasy in the back of your head about like, oh, wow, it'd be so cool if life was like this kind of? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I guess my fantasies are, uh, center around you know living living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle uh which would include you know um my community would 
you know, maybe at most uh, uh, another 100 or 125 um, human beings. You know, I would live with my with my family. Um, One thing that I think they've really established is that uh, hunter and gatherers have more leisure time than than any other sort of uh, social or cultural um, arrangement. Um, so, you know, you, you would use that leisure time to, um, instead of worrying about how you're going to make money to, to pay for stuff, um, spend time with your family, spend time, um, with the natural world, spend time on, on the things that you truly love. Um, and yeah, I think I also, I think that I also have this fantasy of sort of, um, a lack of existential angst that kind of go, goes, I think, with modern life. Um, and just, you know, not always questioning, you know, w- whether my life is good or bad, um, not questioning, you know, what what the purpose of my life is, <laughs> the the... the not experiencing. Um, um, so I, I, I was raised in a, in a, um, devoutly Catholic household. Um, and I'm sorry, had, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so just like not, not, you know, having a spirituality, being raised in a spirituality that made sense to me, um, being raised in a spirituality that taught me to, um, um, love the natural world, love my body, uh, love the bodies of others. Um, um, that wasn't, you know, so guilt ridden, so based in shame and, and, and manipulation. Um, those, you know, I, I, I fantasize about what that would feel like spiritually. Um, I, I fantasize about what it would feel like to, um, not at times want to kill myself never, you know, having that experience being, um, virtually unknown within, within, within my family and within my community. Um, those are the kinds of things that I, I, I fantasize about. I, um, I fantasize about just, you know, you read all those, um, amazing, um, descriptions of, of how much, how much life there was, you know, even just a hundred years ago, but certainly 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, um, you know, just the, the salmon runs, the grizzly bears, the, um, um, you know, the vaquita pita porpoises, um, and, and not having, you know, just, just to live in, in, in a world where, where, those were your companions and your friends, um, and, and sleeping (laughs) my, another basic fantasy of mine is just sleeping every single night under the stars and not, you know, having my eyes pop open from a nightmare and, and seeing a, um, blank ceiling and, um, feeling totally trapped by an apartment, um, um, th- yeah, those, those are the fantasies that, that I have. I totally hear you. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally hear you. Yeah, and I similar. I have very similar fantasies, indeed. I mean, I, I hear the stories of how things used to be. You know, like uh, you've probably heard of of chemists. That was one of the uh, staple foods of people in the in the Great Basin and of the Pacific Northwest. You know, it grew in. Um, and wetlands, you know, and the fields of chemists, which has a, a, a blue or purple flower in the springtime, uh, when Europeans first came into the area, they'd come up over a ridge, they'd see it and they would think it was a lake. All the flowers, they thought it was a lake, you know, that was what was replaced, you know, that that's what was replaced by, um, you know, with with ranching, you know, with the, the farms and all that. And so, so that's really I fantasize, I fantasize about all the cows disappearing from the landscape, you know, and and of those kinds of landscapes coming back and of, yeah, just being able to like hang out outside with, you know, some other people also, you know, just wanting to 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 be with the land and and, and see how to give to it. And and that sounds like a beautiful way of living to me. And it's also the way that coincidentally we lived for like the first 190,000 years of our history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. And so, so to fantasize about who we really are, I mean, that's kind of what that is, which is kind of ridiculous in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and our, and our unconscious, remembers you know our conscious our unconscious is is the same unconscious that we've always had um i mean i guess it's been bombarded by all kinds of things so uh, i guess that semen doesn't completely work but you know our bodies know what we evolved to be our bodies know what we're supposed to do um our bodies are expecting this 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 world that that it just isn't there for most of us anymore. Um, and I just, yeah, I wish that, I don't know. I, I kind of exist with this perpetual feeling that, that, that something has been stolen from me. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, and I, and I'm, of course I'm saying that as, as a white male, I've had less stolen from me than anyone else. Um, but that feeling is deeply pervasive. Um, and yeah, I, and that could, that could be a great, I mean, maybe that's a great way to, to motivate people. You know, I, I thought of, um, yeah, I'm here in, I'm here in Pittsburgh and, and, and a really good friend I'm staying with. And she was going to a baby shower and that got me thinking about how, you know, I, I can't see, um, ever being a father or, um, you know, wanting to introduce a child to, I know that's such a cliche thing to say amongst our circles now, but introducing a child to this world. Um, but there is a part of me that like, that's what I fantasize about being, um, being able to experience a joy like that, um, without worrying with only, only having the normal worries that a parent has about their child and not like worrying if the, if, if a child is going to see the collapse of, of civilization or, um, um, the, the, the collapse of the human species in their lifetime. Um, and just, yeah, I, I just want to be human. <laughs> That's what it is. I just want to be human. <laughs>
<clears throat> yep, I hear you. That's 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 what I feel too. Um, you know, I've really been enjoying the um, writing that you did on your that you've been doing on your new project um, about the Ohio River. So maybe here at the end, you could tell us about uh, where to find your writing and where to follow your stuff. Yeah, um, uh, I yeah I have a new writing project that I've I've named the Ohio River Speaks. Uh, I am uh, traveling with uh, the Ohio River uh, in an attempt to um, um, describe my relationship with the Ohio River, um, but also ask the Ohio River who she is and what she means. Um, if this is a project that for for anyone that's familiar with my little book, How Dams Fall, uh, that How Dams Fall got cut short because um, I was traveling with the Colorado River in connection with the rights of nature lawsuit we filed that I was hoping to gather the river's testimony to, to present in court. The, the lawsuit was dismissed very quickly and I wasn't able to finish that trip. But right now I don't have the constraints of a, a deadline for a lawsuit. And, and I was born on the Ohio River. Um, so I want to um, sort of um, I'm, I'm doing a similar project just with, with a, a river that I, that I was born along that I know better. Um, and you can find my writing at uh, theohioriverspeaks.org. Um, I post, uh, I, I, I just started um, traveling in earnest uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, COVID-19 kind of uh, put a damper, uh, delayed things, but um, I, I've, I've written three pieces now, um, and I, I usually post a couple um, essays a week. Um, I also include photographs of, of what's happening um, in my travels. And I recently, um, my, my latest post, post, I just included some videos. The videos are, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to, another idea I've had is uh, how does the Ohio River speak? Well, one way the Ohio River speaks is, is through the sound of her water. So there will be videos of uh, what the Ohio River sounds like in um, places all throughout her basin. Um, and hopefully I can demonstrate the, the um, beautiful and diverse um, songs that the Ohio River sings. But theohioriverspeaks.org, um, and you can follow along all the content. Um, completely free and accessible and uh, I just want to tell the Ohio River story that's great thank you very much yeah I definitely encourage listeners to go check that out I read all three posts that you had this morning and really enjoyed them thank you for joining me on my podcast today Will it was really a pleasure speaking to you today yeah this was awesome and, and thank you so much for all the tremendous work you're doing Voices for Nature and Peace is produced in the Gila River Valley, New Mexico, USA, on land that we acknowledge is illegally occupied Apache territory. The intro music is Zero G Yogi by Big Z, with narration by Kelly Moody of the Ground Shots podcast. This outro music is Trip A, also by Big Z. Commercial break narration by Nikki Hill. To become a financial supporter of this podcast and to gain access to members-only content, visit patreon.com slash colibri, K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. 
For more information on Radio Free Sunroot programming, please visit RadioFreeSunroot.com. Thank you for listening. May you find joy in your own nature and peace.